Well, I'd certainly say that there's a vine for just about every garden scenario. So if you're an avid gardener, doesn't matter if you're growing vegetables, fruits, flowers, there's something you could be growing on a, a trellis or an arbor or whatever sort of structure you have in your landscape. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnett's Public Engagement Manager for UNH Extension, joined by horticulturist and UNH Extension Field Specialist, Emma Erler. Howdy, everyone. So, Emma, today we are focusing on vines, and there are a lot of different kinds of vines. There are, first of all, vines that you plant versus vines that uh, plant themselves. Uh, there are vines that have different kinds of features, whether they're fruiting vines, fr- vines that are ornamental. There are a lot of different places we could start, but I think we should start as we have in previous episodes with a little bit of definition and level setting. So what makes a plant a vine? Well, that's a good place to start. Vines, technically speaking, are often referred to as lianas. Uh, And that basically means a plant that has a long, flexible climbing stem that's rooted in the ground, um, but doesn't have the ability to support itself without some other structure in place. So in the wild, this often means climbing trees or or climbing uh, bare rocks, cliff faces, that sort of thing. In our gardens, it means climbing fences, perhaps trellises, stone walls, you name it. Um, but essentially that, that key feature there is that the stems and branches of a vine don't support themselves uh, and that they have different structures that they use to climb up things. Okay. And that's going to be a really important theme of our conversation is those structures and properly supporting vines based on an individual species or family's needs uh, and growth habit. But as we as we get into this, we're going to be talking about a lot of plants specifically, uh, but we hear from gardeners and homeowners all the time who see vines. They know they identify that it is a vine. Uh, a lot of times, vines are pretty aggressive growers, uh, which we can talk about. Um, and we get requests: Can you identify this for me? So, what basic tips do you have for folks that see that there are vines growing on their property and they're just not sure what they are? Well, yeah. So there's there's a lot of different species of vines, as you mentioned, and uh, there actually aren't that many native species of vines, or at least of of climbing twining vines that you would expect to be going up into a tree or, or covering over bushes. There are some though, so it is important to be able to tell them apart. What I would be looking at first and foremost is actually the structures that that plant is using to climb, because that's going to be a really good way to tell different vines apart. Uh, Some vines climb by twining, which basically means they wrap their stems around a support. If you're familiar with Asian bittersweet, Celastris orbiculatus, uh, that does exactly that. It twines around things. So if you see it climbing up trees, a vine climbing up a a tree or a telephone pole or something similar, there's a good chance that it's that particular plant. You can also see a, a, another type of, of climbing, and that's with things called um, aerial roots. So these are basically modified roots that 
look similar. So you'll see these these small little root-like projections that the plant is using to hold onto a structure. The probably most common vine you'll see in New Hampshire that would climb this way would be poison ivy. So if you look at it, you see all these little hairs coming off of the vine that's holding it in place. You could also look for uh, structures called tendrils, which you're only going to see on a, a small number or a smaller number of plants. But these are basically thin, flexible, leafless stems that wrap around supports. So you'd see these on, on things like grapes or peas. There are a number of native grapevines in New Hampshire, and we definitely get questions about those. I, I've identified grapes for people on many occasions. So if you see something that has this, you know, this very delicate tendril, this leafless stem curling around a support, that's going to be an indication or it's going to get you closer to figuring out what it is. And then finally, uh, some vines have what are called holdfasts, which for all intents and purposes look like little suction cups that are used to climb up a structure. The common vines that have these would be things like Boston ivy or Virginia creeper. Boston ivy you're not going to find growing in the woods, but Virginia creeper you very well could because that is native and widespread throughout New Hampshire. Now, once you've identified the way a vine climbs, then it's helpful to look at all the other features you would if you're identifying a plant. So look at the leaf orientation. Are those leaves alternate, opposite, or world? They're probably going to be alternate or opposite. And then you could be, if you're lucky, looking at the flowers that are on the vine uh, flowers are always going to help you identify a plant. And of course, paying attention to, to leaf edges, uh, leaf shape, etc. I know one high level differentiator between vines is whether they're woody or herbaceous. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that and help me understand why many of these woody vines actually appear herbaceous when they're young. Great question. Yeah. So woody vines are going to be the vines that have a, a very permanent stem or structure. So the growth is going to come out of this point every single season, or there'll be, I guess, more or less, like I said, a, a, a fixed permanent stem that grows on a structure. More that looks really, for all intents and purposes, more like the, the stem of a, a self-supporting upright shrub. So there's bark, there are annual growth rings, perennial vines, fall into this category typically. Uh, herbaceous, or I should say, yeah, all perennial vines are going to, are, are not all, but the majority of perennial vines are going to fit into that category. Herbaceous vines are the plants that I would, I would say are coming up with all new growth every year. So you've got no woody bark or um, permanent tissue. These are plants that are killed to the ground in the fall, and they either arise again from roots or rhizomes that are underground or from seed. So a lot of annual vines I would consider to be herbaceous and some perennial vines as well, like pale and black swallowwort, which is a, another, another or I should say invasive species of vines that will be killed to the ground in the fall but then they will grow up again in the spring. Now, in terms of, you know, telling whether something is woody herbaceous when it's very young, that can be hard because when woody vines first sprout from seed, let's say something like the Asian bittersweet, 
that plant hasn't had time yet to put on those annual growth rings. So you're just seeing that fresh new growth of a single season. If you were to allow that vine to grow a second year, then you'd start to get some of that woody tissue and that bark forming on it. But when they're when they're young, it, it can be a bit harder to identify them. But that's true for basically all plants. And I don't mean to set a negative tone from the outset in this conversation, but why don't we start by talking about invasive vines and, and then we'll move on to non-invasive vines for the rest of the episode. Uh, so you've mentioned Oriental or Asian bittersweet. You've mentioned black and pale swallowwort. So what are the invasive vines? Um, and let's talk a little bit about each of them in terms of how to identify them, uh, why they're considered invasive, and how to get control over them. Why don't we start with bittersweet? Asian bittersweet is definitely one of the most common vines you're probably going to find in New Hampshire, and that's just because it is incredibly competitive and very good at spreading by seed and by uh root fragments. So a lot of times if you're trying to get rid of this plant too, if you leave some roots in the ground, you'll get a whole bunch more plants coming up. Bittersweet, like I mentioned a bit earlier, is a vine that climbs by twining. So you'll often see it twisting its way around trees or shrubs as it gets itself established in the landscape. It has alternate leaves. So those leaves are in a zigzag pattern up the vine. And just kind of a, a light brown, rather nondescript bark on the older plants. The leaves itself, once they're mature, are very round. So the the uh, scientific name for the plant um, is actually orbiculatus, Celastris orbiculatus. So that orb-shaped round leaf is an indicator. Um, and the leaves have a bit more of a tooth tip when they're uh, when they're younger. Bittersweet is probably best known, though, for its really, really showy fruits, which have these yellow coverings and bright, bright orange interior seeds. For years and years, bittersweet was grown as an ornamental uh, because those fruits are so attractive. And some people might still collect it for use in, in holiday decorations or for around the house. Uh, but that's if, if you don't recognize it by the foliage, hopefully you'll recognize it by the, the real showy fruit that shows up in late summer or fall. So one, one theme that I think is going to come up with bittersweet as well as a number of vines, like say grapes that you mentioned, is that they don't always bear fruit. And that can be confusing uh, for people, especially with something like grapes, where they're like, okay, you say this is a grape, where are the grapes? Uh, I've heard of that, not seen it myself, but heard of that with bittersweet. Can you explain that? So bittersweet's one of these plants that flowers and fruits on old growth. So if you only have very young growth, so new sprouts that are coming up from the ground, or let's say a, a vine that was pruned back at some point, and it's just sent out a whole bunch of, of newer stems, you're not typically going to get flowers on that, those vines or fruits. So in that case, you may have a, a healthy stand of bittersweet that, let's say, is, is being mowed consistently or has been cut consistently, or it's just very young and just starting to get established. You won't see those fruits. With something like a grape, you know, it's harder to say. Grapes do need a fair amount of sunlight in order to fruit. Grapes that are in heavy shade, which occurs, um, perhaps that vine got established before the woods grew up around it, or, you know, it just happened to germinate in an area where there isn't a whole lot of sunlight. 
they may not fruit. Uh, and there could be something to do with juvenility there too, where a vine's not old enough yet to actually flower and fruit. And so you mentioned for bittersweet, of course, this is an invasive vine that if it's on your property or, well, anywhere for that matter, you want to control it. And you talked about mowing. You talked about cutting back. Are those viable control strategies? Yeah, there are a bunch of ways to tackle bittersweet. One, if you're if you don't want to use chemicals at all, repeatedly cutting the vines can certainly help, although it's definitely going to take you a long time to totally get ahead of the vines that way. But yeah, repeated mowing, repeated cutting can help quite a bit. Better yet, digging up the vines is going to be helpful, which is probably going to be possible with smaller plants. Might be difficult with really large established vines because these these can get very, very large in diameter. Uh, If you are willing to use an herbicide, then that's also another option. So smaller, younger bittersweet might be easy enough to treat the foliage with an herbicide. If it's a really mature plant that's going way up into a tree, you might find that it's easier to cut that that uh, stem close to the ground and treat that cut stem or actually do an herbicide application to the bark itself. And what's nice about something like bittersweet being a woody plant is you can use herbicides that are a little bit more targeted as opposed to something very broad spectrum, uh, which is helpful, especially if you're doing that cut stem treatment where very targeted. Um, for for folks that are wary of using herbicides and count me among them, uh, how can you make sure that when you are controlling bittersweet with an herbicide that you're minimizing um, any any unintended impacts on on plants or the environment more broadly? I think the best way to do that, honestly, is to paint the herbicide on. And for controlling an invasive woody vine like this, you're probably going to be picking up a product that is labeled for brush control for woody plants. And the instructions on that label, if it's intended for this purpose, there will be instructions there on how to use an undiluted product uh, to, to paint it on that stem. When you do this, uh, you're, you shouldn't, if you're being careful, shouldn't be getting herbicide anywhere other than where you intend to put it, which is frankly, quite helpful. Uh, And it tends to be pretty effective, this method too. Um, You know, of course, there's always going to be a little bit of risk to the applicator. So being as careful as you possibly can, Um, certainly wearing any PPE that's recommended on the label, and even wearing more if you're a little bit nervous. You know, sometimes a label might just say, you know, to wear gloves uh, but there's no issue with with wearing some safety glasses or goggles, rubber boots, you know, going as far as wearing Tyvek if you want to to make that application. Can you do that cut stump or cut stem treatment any time of year? You can. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit more effective um, when that plant is actively growing versus when it's dormant in the winter months. I would often be thinking about trying to do that sort of application in the fall. Uh, Fall applications in general tend to be more effective on perennial plants just because that plant is really pulling things downward, pulling nutrients downward into its root system to prepare for the fall, as opposed to sending things upward in the spring uh, to get new growth going. So that would be my preference, but 
it's not hard and fast. And what you may find, too, is that you're not going to get absolute control with a single application. So you might apply in the fall and then get some regrowth in the spring and really not want to wait around months to tackle the issue again. So you could you could apply then, too. And the tricky thing about controlling bittersweet is that birds are going to continue to spread seeds on your property no matter what you do. So it's really about kind of stemming the tide uh, and eliminating very mature bittersweet that could be destructive against trees and shrubs on your property, right? Very true. I think for a lot of people, if you have a heavy bittersweet infestation, it can be a little bit overwhelming and frankly, perhaps too much to take care of or to to really worry about um, without putting a lot of effort in. I think where it's really critical to get ahead of it is where it hasn't become fully established yet. When you first see just a couple of vines coming up here and there. I mean, of course, if you have an established stand on your property, if you have the the time and energy to work on it, getting rid of that invasive is is going to be helpful if you can encourage a native plant community instead. But being vigilant and eliminating it before it can become established in a new area area, I think, is even more important. Okay, and there are some other invasive vines too. You had mentioned black and pale swallowwort, so those are two different species of swallowwort that are both considered invasive. Tell us about those, how you identify them, why they're invasive, and we'll get to control. So these are uh, the swallowworts are invasive species that I believe also were introduced from Asia. They are actually in the milkweed family. So if you were to break off a swallowwort vine, you would find that there was a, a milky latexy sap on the inside, just just like you find in in other milkweeds, um, although per- perhaps not not quite as much of it as you might find in common milkweed. It has opposite leaves, so that's good to notice because not too many vines have that characteristic. So those vines are or those leaves are directly across from one another, and has very small clustered star-shaped flowers. And basically, you can tell it's two species apart easily based on the color of the flowers, whether they're a a very, very dark purple-red or or a paler um, reddish color. It is also definitely one of these herbaceous vines, so it's something that's going to die back in the winter. It's not going to have a woody stem, uh, but it'll come back with a vengeance each season. And... uh, if the plant does indeed flower, then you will notice seed pods that are quite similar to milkweed. So these, these or they're called follicles. So basically the seed pod that splits along a single seam and has these airborne uh, seeds that will come out when the, when the pod is ripe. Um, swallowwort will spread by seed and by uh, its roots or rhizomes underground. I think the, the roots are probably the more considerable issue, um, although new populations are going to be established by seed. So in some areas, the way that this plant is managed, particularly non-chemically, is just removing all of the seed pods. So actually going out and having a seed pod harvest to prevent the the seeds from blowing around and spreading further, and at least containing the population in a specific area. What time of year is that? Uh, It'll be later in the summer. Yeah, it's like mid to late summer, typically. You want to get those seed pods while they're still green and closed up before those seeds start to ripen and those seed pods open up. 
my understanding is one of the really challenging aspects of controlling these swallowwort species is that they tend to grow in wetter environments where you're going to be restricted on potential chemical control. Is that your understanding too? You know, I see it growing just about everywhere. I mean, I was on a river over the weekend and I saw swallowwort growing right down by the banks of the river. But I've also seen it in upland fields and even in people's backyards or or it's moved into their garden spaces. Like many of the other invasive plant species, it, it tends to grow in a wide variety of environments and it's it's competitive in all of those. But if swallowwort is growing right next to a a water body, that does make it a bit more difficult to control and that you're not going to be able to legally apply um, most pesticides right next to the water um, as as a homeowner. Uh, You're going to, in order to do that, would need to have a pesticide applicator's license uh, in order to be able to use some restricted use chemicals. And so that leaves you with the option of, I guess harvesting those seed pods can can you just pull this plant as well is that effective you could so if you had a small patch in a garden setting i think that would be okay i would probably actually pull out the shovel or the garden fork to try to lift out as many roots as possible it's going to be really hard to get rid of this way because it will sprout from any little root fragments you leave in the ground so if you're very patient and it's just a small patch you might get ahead of it that way with a larger patch outside of collecting the seed pods, uh, frequent mowing might help a bit and smothering could certainly work too, just like it it works for some other invasive species. So putting, putting heavy black plastic or tarps over top of it and letting those sit for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. So Bittersweet and swallow are both really challenging. There's one other challenging invasive vine that comes to mind, which is Japanese honeysuckle. So tell us about that one. Japanese honeysuckle is a vine that was introduced for ornamental purposes. Surprise, surprise. Like all the other honeysuckles, it does have opposite leaves that are oval shaped, more or less. Some of them have more of kind of a heart shaped base to them, um, which distinguishes it from some of the other honeysuckles. It has flowers that resemble most other honeysuckles. So these these white lobe flowers that are very fragrant and they are showy. Japanese honeysuckle is a vine that it doesn't really grow by uh, twining or it doesn't have you know tendrils or hold fast. Really, it, it takes over areas just by smothering vegetation by covering over things that are closer to the ground or or maybe climbing up some some shrubs that are nearby you know just as it grows its leaves and stems kind of hooking on vegetation as it grows um it is problematic and then it grows really really quickly um uh, it does spread by seed as well so you if there are birds or small mammals around they're probably going to spread this plant and it it doesn't like the majority of all the other invasive species it really doesn't have any predators so there's there's nothing there's no insects or wildlife feeding on it really it's it's just left to its own devices okay and is controlling japanese honeysuckle more like controlling oriental or asian bittersweet or is it more like controlling black and pale swallowwort uh i would say it's 
probably going to be a little bit more like controlling the bittersweet. It is a woody vine, although the, the stems never tend to get very large or robust. It is, for all intents and purposes, a bit more like a, a shrubby growth pattern, um, woody vine growth pattern. So you you might be able to get away with smothering it if you had a, a really thick plastic and you mowed it very, very close to the ground. Uh, for a lot of infestations, though, chemical treatment is probably going to be the most efficient and uh, cost-effective measure. And since the stems are so small, do you end up having to spray the bark? Yeah, well, it kind of depends on how you're doing it. So one approach, because this vine tends to kind of drape on the ground and grow over top of everything, that you might just want to spray the foliage. Because uh, chances are, if there's a if there's a Japanese honeysuckle infestation, that's probably about all there is in that area. Uh, you could potentially do a cut stem treatment. Uh, that that could work fine as well, particularly for older, more established plants. So it's it's kind of up to you. Um, but I, I think I think spraying a foliage is probably how how most people would attack this one. Gotcha. And for those listeners that maybe aren't in New Hampshire or even northern New England, maybe further south, there are a few other invasive vines that aren't necessarily established here but are kind of on our radar. What what are those for you? There's a couple on my list. One is Japanese hop. So it's a, a plant that's related to the the European hops that we'll we enjoy growing for for beer, that sort of thing. Um but it doesn't it doesn't produce an edible hop or anything that's that's used for uh um food produ- food or drink production. Um instead it was again introduced for ornamental purposes and escaped. I haven't seen much of this vine in New Hampshire or in New England in general, uh, but it is quite prevalent further south. So when I worked in Pennsylvania, this is a plant I had to deal with often. Um, if you know what hops look like, you'll probably recognize Japanese hops. It's it's a similar kind of hairy divided leaf with a kind of a hairy stem. Uh, and this is one that's probably you're going to find growing across the ground or twining up um, smaller trees or shrubs. Another one to watch out for is kudzu, which is a huge issue in southern states, uh, but isn't yet a big problem in New England. Kudzu is a member of the, the pea and bean family. So if you're familiar with what, with what bean leaves look like, You'll probably recognize kudzu in that way because it has a three-parted leaf. Uh, like I said, it's it's one that isn't really here yet, but it's probably coming. Uh, and one other, too, that I think is probably worth mentioning just because it was such an issue when I worked down in Cape Cod. And again, when I worked in Pennsylvania, it was porcelain berry. This is a vine that has foliage. It looks kind of like grape leaves, and the the berries are remarkable. There are they come in all different colors on the same plant. All these different pastels, so from blues, purples, greens, pinks, and it's it's totally understandable why this vine became a, a popular ornamental. But it too spreads by seed readily, so look up this one if you're not familiar with it. Uh, keep your eyes open for it. Uh, if you live further south in New England or, you know, anywhere uh, in the East Coast, uh, y- you'll probably run into this vine at some point in time. 
Another troublesome vine that's as close as Massachusetts is the mile a minute vine, right? Yeah, mile a minute vine. So that's the uh, ones I just mentioned tend to have are pretty big in stature. So you're noticing a, a big, huge vine or plant. Mile a minute vine is this very delicate little plant that has these um, very, uh, well, they're, they're quite aggressive, these thorns on the stem and on the backs of the leaves or the petioles of the leaves that will really tear your skin. So it forms an impenetrable thicket if it becomes established. This is a vine that's going to, mile a minute, will die back in the winter. So once you get a, a hard frost, but it tends to come back, uh, raging back in the spring. Um, and it does spread also by seed and has little berries on it that uh, either are going to drop to the ground on their own or, or might be eaten by wildlife and spread. Okay, and I mentioned we were starting this conversation off kind of with a negative overtone and we're going to transition more to the positive so let's let's depart from invasive species and talk about a few plants that people may consider invasive but we're going to push back on that because well for one they're native so we've got poison ivy and we've got virginia creeper and we get people all the time asking, how do I control this invasive poison ivy or invasive Virginia creeper? And unlike these other plants that are European or Asian introductions, these have been among us the entire time. That's right. And they do legitimately have benefits to the environment and certainly are, are good wildlife food sources. I think where we get kind of confused, I think, is that some of these native plants like like the Virginia creeper or poison ivy can have invasive characteristics or, or very aggressive growth, but they, they did evolve here and they, they occur naturally here. So they're not introduced invasive species or exotic invasive species. They might have an invasive growth habit, let's say, uh, but they're, they're, you're not going to find them on any sort of invasive species list. And I'm probably going to continue to advocate for having some of them in the landscape poison ivy is obviously trickier i certainly have a love-hate relationship with it because i'm i'm very sensitive to the oils in poison ivy uh, and get a, a rash quite easily uh, in fact i actually have a little bit of poison ivy right now as we speak but when it's in an area where people and pets don't have to be trafficking it's really an attractive vine with the the glossy foliage that turns a beautiful red-orange in the fall, and white berries, which are enjoyed by actually a number of songbirds and small mammals, and some herbivores, too, will eat the foliage. So deer, for example, are, are known to browse on poison ivy. So as much as we might not like it, uh, it is valuable, and, and certainly I'm not worried about a loss of poison ivy in the environment. Uh, but I do encourage people to just leave it alone if it's in an area where you don't need to be walking around or, or coming in contact with it. The Virginia creeper is another one. So this is a, a vine that climbs by those holdfasts, those little suction cups, more or less. It often creeps along the ground, and people get upset that it's forming this dense, dense ground cover. Uh, but it also has the potential to climb up into trees. Unlike bittersweet, though, it 
isn't robust enough to typically cause storm damage. So while the vine may be up in the tree, it's not adding that much weight and not making it that much more likely for trees to blow over. So I don't worry about it. It too has incredibly beautiful fall color, bright, bright red, and it produces fruits, which are enjoyed by a bunch of wildlife species. And the foliage is fed on actually by a number of insects too. What are the identifying characteristics for both? Um, Understanding, of course, poison ivy is often misidentified. So I'm curious if you have any insight on why that is and how you can get that identification correct next time. Poison ivy is tricky in that it comes in a variety of growth habits or forms. It can grow just as a low ground cover. It can you know, actually grow into you know a two or three foot tall shrub. Or it can climb up into trees and for all intents and purposes, you know, just behave like a vine. That's when it's climbing things. That's when you really see those those aerial rootlets, those those brown hairy projections that are that are um, helping the vine grow up things. So it gets a little tricky knowing that it, it can grow in different ways. When you're looking at poison ivy, for me, I think the the foliage is has a you know, at least one feature that, that really defines it. Uh, poison ivy has a three-parted leaf. So it has three leaflets so that make up uh, an entire leaf. So basically it has three segments. The two leaflets that are on the side are attached directly to the stem. The largest leaflet that's in the middle is attached by a smaller little stem that projects it out away from the other two. Uh, I think that's helpful a bit. Um, you might also notice the alternate foliage uh, pattern on the stem. And in most cases, there will be just a few large teeth on the edge of the leaf, so a few large indents. Sometimes there aren't any at all, which can make it a little bit tricky. But the majority of the time, you'll notice that feature as well. And, and I think it's it's so tricky because for a lot of people, the only thing they know about poison ivy is that it has three leaves. And so they tend to be scared, essentially, of any plant in the landscape that has three leaves. Uh, how can you? Right. How how can you know what what are you looking for besides the three leaves? And uh, I don't know, dude. How, how can you just calm down and take a take a second to be like, okay, I know it has three leaves, but is this actually poison ivy? Because if you're avoiding any plant with three leaves in the landscape, uh, you know where are you supposed to go? Most of the plants, in my experience anyways, that get confused with poison ivy are in the the bramble group. So blackberries, raspberries, dewberries, all of these plants also have a three-parted leaf, which is sometimes shiny, which is is often a characteristic that's that's given to poison ivy as well. The thing though that all of these bramble crops have, so the the blackberries, the raspberries, the the dewberry that I mentioned, they all have prickles or thorns or spines on their stems. So if you take a closer look at the stem those leaves are coming off with and you see little little prickles or spines, definitely not poison ivy. And if you see a, a bright, showy, uh, you know, typically white five-petaled flower, also not poison ivy. Uh, poison ivy flowers are pretty nondescript. And with poison ivy, you had mentioned that, uh, of course, we have to 
there are some situations where poison ivy is growing in a spot that's just unacceptable, a spot that you are frequently trafficking or a spot maybe that your pets or children are frequently trafficking, but it's completely unrealistic and unadvisable in your opinion as well to try and eliminate it from the landscape. It is a native plant with wildlife value and frankly, trying to eliminate it is just a fool's errand. It's a, it's a very resilient native plant that's going to that's going to continue to thrive despite your best efforts. Um, but for those situations that you do need to get rid of it, uh, what would be your recommendation for an effective, safe, and uh, environmentally low-impact way of doing so? Absolutely. I, I know a lot of people claim to be totally immune to poison ivy, which some people really don't react very much to it. So they, they might be braver when it, it comes to, let's say, mowing the plant repeatedly. That's that's a possibility. Um, repeated mowing can eventually get ahead of it, although it, it takes a very long time. Uh, another option uh, for those that are, that are very brave or very careful with, with putting on long sleeves, long pants, wearing heavy-duty gloves that are disposable, is to actually hand, hand pull the plants up or maybe carefully dig them up. I have done that in the past to, with, with great success, uh, but I try to be as careful as I possibly can to avoid getting any of that oil on my, my skin. Um, and I do wash up with either heavy duty laundry soap, dish detergent, or um, a specific poison ivy soap afterwards to get any oils off my person, off of my clothing, off of my tools. If um, you really, really want to limit your contact with poison ivy and you have a very, very large patch in an area where, where mowing is, is simply not practical, then using herbicides is probably going to be appropriate again. Um, and those the same brush killer herbicides that we mentioned earlier that can be used for oriental bittersweet are often labeled for poison ivy as well. And because you're trying to limit contact with the plant, you're going to be applying when the foliage is out, probably not trying to cut it and apply to cut stems. Uh, so it'll be a spot application going around and applying it to whichever vines you see. And ideally, well, I guess I said this already, but applying when the vines are actively growing and fall is probably going to be a bit more effective. Let's transition now, I, if, if, unless you have anything to add to the the vines that at least have some sort of uh, undesirable characteristic. Let's move on to some vines that we can celebrate. Does that sound good? Okay. So we've already talked about um, some vines that have uh, value to wildlife, uh, but besides Virginia creeper and poison ivy, any other native vines that come to mind? And and I, I will also preface this by saying, I know earlier you said there aren't that many native vines. So maybe it's a short list. It is rather. So Virginia creeper is one in the poison ivy are ones that you're going to find growing all over the place in New Hampshire. Not uncommon to stumble upon at all. There are a bunch of wild grapes too that might be in the landscape or you could add to the landscape that are going to provide good wildlife value like fox, river, or summer grape. You might also be thinking about 
extending your definition of native and bringing in or, or planting some vines that occur further south in the U.S. Uh, something like trumpet honeysuckle is a really popular garden ornamental because it's so favored by hummingbirds. Uh, and also American wisteria, which is visited by a number of butterfly species. So another another attractive um more or less native. You, you would would be hard-pressed to find it growing in the wild in New Hampshire, uh, but in New England, a possibility. And then possibly American bittersweet, too, which looks very similar to Oriental bittersweet, uh, but it, it isn't quite as showy, doesn't produce quite as many fruits as the Oriental. And I want to revisit a question I asked you a little bit ago, which is about grapes that aren't fruiting. Um, just to to add one piece uh, to what you said, um, at least our wild grapes actually have male and female plants. And oh, cool! So my understanding is that if you want to provide wildlife value, you need the fruits, which means you need male and female plants. I mean, you, you mentioned other reasons why they might not be fruiting, which uh, those are all accurate. But I think the, the other reason why uh, a grape, uh, wild grapes that maybe are growing in good conditions and are mature and still not fruiting might just be because there's not a female plant. Yeah, having both male and female flowers is key. And and that's a, it's interesting because I I think cultivated grapes are not like that. It's really just some of these wild grape species. And then you've you talked about wisteria as being a vine that is really attractive to butterflies. Uh, are there any other pollinator magnets or insect magnets when it comes to uh, these these vines that we might? plant or cultivate in a garden and yard setting? That's a great question. So if we're not talking about things being native, if we're getting away from that idea, then there are definitely other vines that have benefits in the landscape. Uh, one <clears throat> that I would be thinking of is is some of the uh, plants in the morning glory family. There's a whole bunch of them. Of course, morning glories are, are one on um, moonflower uh, cypress vine. All of these have these tubular flowers, which can be attractive to, to hummingbirds and other pollinators. So that might be something you consider planting. There are, you know, some, some other showy annual vines too, that will probably get some pollinator use. I'm thinking things like, like passion flowers, uh, maybe hyacinth bean or scarlet runner bean, you know, probably not a ton of, of pollinator action, uh, but, but perhaps a little. So if you are just, you know, trying to have more um, garden space and want to have some vines that, so you can use vertical space more in the garden, you know, certainly no harm in having those around. Uh, and one other vine, I guess, that I'll add to this list is uh, Trumpet Creeper, which is a vine that is native to North America. Uh, it's cited as being invasive in New England in some locations. It's not native to New England. And it can be kind of aggressive if it's growing in a habitat where it's it's really, really happy. But it's beautiful. It has these trumpet-shaped flowers that will definitely get visited by hummingbirds and, and probably a number of insect pollinators as well. For some of these vines that you're talking about, like a trumpet creeper, where you know that they tend to be aggressive, how can you as a gardener 
uh, keep them under control and keep them cultivated? Well, one big thing is just going to be with pruning. A lot of vines can can be quite aggressive if they are grown in a habit in our habitat or an environment that is ideal. So the right soil conditions, the right light conditions, um, you know, moisture, nutrients, you name it. And in order to keep them under control, you need to be consistently pruning, you know, at least once a year, um, maybe even twice a year, depending on, on what it is we're talking about. In some cases, too, like with the uh, trumpet creeper, which tends to grow by suckers a fair amount coming out from the, the root system, having that plant contained in the ground by some sort of, of barrier might be helpful. So some sort of, of planting bed that has, let's say, a, a root barrier. Uh, that, that's kind of extreme, and I don't know that anybody wants to go to that those lengths to grow that particular vine. Um, but if you're really excited about it, that's something you might do. Or else you'll just be cutting off or pulling up uh, little little suckers that are coming up here and there. And what what is there to pruning vines? Uh, is, is there any particular technique or um, how do you know where to make cuts? And when do you do it? Is, does it? Does it matter? With something like cultivated grapes... I know it definitely matters and you want to do dormant pruning with those like you would with many cultivated fruits, but for just ornamental vines, uh, does it matter? It really depends just like with with flowering trees and shrubs on when that plant is going to bloom. Uh, If it's a, a vine that blooms on old growth, so growth of the previous season, then you would want to do your pruning shortly after that plant has flowered. Uh, if it's going to produce its its flowers and its um, fruits on new growth, which a lot of vines do too, then doing your pruning early in the, the or I should say late winter or very early spring, that dormant season, like you mentioned, Nate, for grapes, is going to be the key. Give us a few examples. Gives Okay, great. Yeah, so let's say, for example, um, you want to grow Dutchman's Pipe, which is a, an attractive vine that has heart-shaped leaves and kind of interesting flowers. If you are really interested in the flowers and Dutchman's Pipe, but it really the plant really needs to be cut back, you would probably want to wait until after it's finished flowering because it does flower earlier in the season and then prune afterwards so that you can enjoy those blooms uh, before cutting it back. I would say the the same is going to go for uh, something like a, a, a Japanese honeysuckle, which or not Japanese, sorry, a um, trumpet honeysuckle, which is also going to bloom early in the season. You probably, uh, on older growth, so there too, you're going to want to wait on uh, and wait until after it's finished blooming if you want to enjoy those flowers. Whereas, you know, a number of others, um, like you just mentioned, the the grapes are actually going to produce their flowers and fruits on some of that new growth. So that is important to do that during the dormant season. And quite honestly, if you're not terribly concerned about flowers or fruits, then it's fine to do all of your pruning in the dormant season. How you do the pruning varies a lot, and this gets nitty and gritty, you know, depending on which type of vine you're growing. With some vines, you're probably going to leave a main permanent stem, 
So this is what happens with grapes. This is what's going to happen with wisteria. So you have this this woody main stem that you have various branches coming off of. With something, let's say, like a clematis, it varies dramatically. Some clematis will bloom all on new growth, and so they can be completely cut to the ground if they've gotten messy, whereas others are going to bloom bloom on older growth. So you have to be a little bit pickier with your your pruning on those. Um, Clematis are particularly tricky, and it's worth knowing exactly which variety you have or which species you have in order to get the pruning right so you don't eliminate flowers. Uh, and some some vines too, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but um, hardy kiwi or tricolor kiwi, these can be incredibly aggressive and in some cases need to be pruned a couple of times throughout the season in order to keep them in check. Um, in most cases, you're not going to be totally cutting those to the ground. There is, again, probably going to be a main stem that you are just pruning out or thinning out longer stems from. Like pruning trees or shrubs. The ideal with vines too is that you're trying to hide those cuts and make your cuts about a quarter inch above a leaf or a live bud. And at least for hardy kiwi, we're fortunate in that we have an entire production guide that I'll put the link to in the show notes that goes over exactly how to prune. I know with some of these other plants, you might have to do a little bit more homework. This is true. So for for those real enthusiasts who want to grow, let's say, tropical vines, that we don't want to grow them annually and plant them from seed or from, from a young plant every year. We want to grow mature plants, and uh, but at the same time, you want to grow plants that are very much not hardy to our area. Uh, what kind of hacks are there for growing those in a way that you can bring them inside over the winter and bring them outside again in the spring? Yes, there are a bunch of really attractive vines that are perennial. So they they would be coming back year after year if they were growing in their native tropical habitats. But they wouldn't survive the winter here if they were in the ground. And these things tend to also be kind of slow growing. So totally starting over every season isn't something you're typically going to do from seed. Perhaps you save a cutting. Uh, But in most cases, you're just going to buy an entirely new plant unless you're able to overwinter it. The vines that I would be thinking of trying to to keep over would be things like passionflower, uh, bougainvillea, mandevilla, jasmine, alamanda, uh, or maybe one of the the fancy Dutchman's pipes, um, aristolochia. With all of these, if you're going to be trying to grow them year-round, they're going to need to be in containers. I wouldn't try to put them in the ground. You're going to have them in a a container of some sort and probably in the summer have some sort of support for them to climb on, you know, be it a a trellis or a a gate or fence or something like that. And when you bring these indoors for the winter, you'll probably have best luck if you cut them back a fair amount. So things like the the bougainvillea or the jasmine are, are or even the alamanda are going to have more of a, a permanent stem uh, that you're not going to want to completely cut to the ground. So you'll, you'll want to leave at least um, those permanent, permanent stems or branches that are kind of woody and then just cut back some of the top growth. Cause it is probably going to be difficult to bring the whole vine indoors with all that top growth. Well, and, and you're mentioning growing it on a fence or something like that. You can't bring the fence inside with you. 
you can't bring the fence inside. So once you've cut it back a fair amount, uh, you're going to bring it indoors. And the trick with the, most of these is that they do require a fairly humid environment in order to do well. Some of us are lucky and might have an attached greenhouse on our house that is going to work out pretty well. If you don't, it gets a little bit trickier. Uh, things like the the Mandevilla tend to tend to really not enjoy our indoor ambient environment in the home over the winter. So you might have, if you're really set on keeping that plant and you don't have a greenhouse or a real humid environment, you might have to dream something up uh, where you have some sort of, of growth chamber or something where you can have increased humidity. It gets messy. Things that I, I've had great success with overwintering are things like the, the passion flower, the, the bougainvillea, the jasmine, um, Less success with Mandevilla, just under ordinary uh, indoor conditions. Well, trying to create a growth chamber for a large vine, that's, I I don't even know how you'd go about doing that. It's uh, usually when I see people using these uh, kind of growth chambers, it's for pretty small plants that can go on a shelf. It it is. Yeah. So I, I, I doubt that most people are going to want to put in the effort for that. If they're probably that passionate about your vines, you're probably looking at constructing some sort of greenhouse. Heated greenhouse, I might add. And if anybody listening has done that, <laughs> please send photos. We would love to see it. So we, you've obviously talked about a number of vines already, but there's some that we haven't gotten to yet and certainly not in any detail. Uh, for for some of the vines that you're really growing very specifically for the flowers, you've mentioned clematis, you've mentioned wisteria, a couple that I don't think you've mentioned yet that are uh, popular cultivated vines are climbing hydrangea and climbing rose. Yeah, I have not gotten to those yet. Climbing hydrangea is one of my favorite vines. If you have a, an area that has a, a pretty good rich soil, that's on the uh, consistently moist side. Unlike the majority of other vines, this one does really well in shade. You're actually probably going to have better luck with it if you put it in a shady or part shade location versus a full sun location, unless you're really, really good about watering in that full sun location. Uh, It's one of the the few hydrangeas, too, that is actually really attractive to pollinators, which is nice. So it's it's not native. Again, this is a plant that comes from Asia, but it does tend to attract a a lot of bees and, and beetle activity when it's in bloom earlier in the season. Climbing hydrangea is one of these vines that climbs with aerial roots. So you'll have these these little projections that come off the stem. Because of that growth habit, I think it grows better on some sort of solid surface. I've seen it to great effect on stone walls, uh, growing up larger trees, let's say on on pines, on a couple of cases on retaining walls, you know, stone or cement retaining walls where it, it grew really, really nicely. Probably wouldn't put it on a wooden fence just because it's it's not going to be good for the fence long term and certainly not on your house. Uh, but and I wouldn't be trying to grow it on a, a trellis or some sort of lattice work fence or something like that, just because the vine isn't really going to use that that feature. It's not gonna, it's not going to grow on it all that well, or at least it's not going to twine around it and look attractive in that way. The climbing rose is kind of interesting in that ro- roses climb 
in a different way from what I've mentioned with all the other vines. Uh, they're actually just going to use their their thorns and their their leaves and their arching canes to grow up and over structures. So typically, if you have a climbing rose, you have to do a little bit of work to get it to grow on the arbor or something that you have. You need to get in there with some sort of twine or tape to hold it in place. With those, uh, and they're very, very attractive. Uh, they do well if you have a nice, rich soil. And uh, you'll get blooms consistently if you're paying attention to uh, the variety you have and uh, bloom time. And how do you prune climbing rose? Usually with climbing roses, you're going to, kind of like some of the other plants I've mentioned, you're probably going to leave the main stems, which I would consider more or less permanent. They could be renewed uh, closer to the base at some point. But usually what you're doing is just pruning back some of the really long canes that are getting out of hand. So some of these long arching canes that are getting away from the support that are superfluous that you don't want to uh, tie down to the arbor as well. Uh, and leaving leaving certainly enough older, hopefully older growth on there that you're still going to have some good blooms. And then in terms of uh, vines that maybe you're not growing principally for the flowers, but um, are growing for uh, ornamental fruit or seed pods, one, one kind of interesting vine that I don't think you've brought up yet uh, is wild cucumber, which has really interesting seed pods. Super cool. Yeah. So wild cucumber is one that people don't typically cultivate on purpose, but it, it could it could come up on your property and might be worth keeping around just because they have such interesting prickly seed pods. Uh, for things that you would be more likely to run into at, let's say, the garden center, you could pick up seeds for, uh, would be things like tricolor kiwi, which is a, a close relative to hardy kiwi that would be grown for fruits. It has splashes of white and pink on the foliage, which is kind of attractive, uh, but you're not going to really have real showy flowers or fruits to worry about. That Dutchman's pipe that I mentioned before has really attractive big heart-shaped leaves that are honestly, I, I think, much more exciting than the flowers themselves. Hops are often grown for the foliage too, uh, as well as Boston ivy, English ivy, and Virginia creeper. Uh, the Boston ivy is the vine that you often see growing on brick buildings. It's one of these these climbers that does really well on structures like that. What other vines do well growing on buildings? The I think probably the two best are probably going to be that Boston Ivy or maybe Virginia Creeper. Uh, if you're at the UNH campus, you can actually, at least the last time I was there, uh, see both growing um, on the, the, the side of... Um, the hockey arena, which is which is kind of cool, growing right up the cement. Those two, I, I think I mentioned earlier, have these little suction cup like holdfasts that they they climb up with, uh, which is is perfect for that sort of structure. Um, English ivy, I probably wouldn't be thinking of for that scenario. English ivy climbs by these aerial roots, similar to the, the climbing hydrangea or similar to poison ivy. So that's one that's usually more grown as a, a ground cover vine that will occasionally uh, escape and climb up trees or might climb over a fence or something. And I believe hardy kiwi can be grown on buildings too, because I've seen it at Martha Stewart's house, not in person, but I've seen pictures of it. 
Certainly. It would need a little bit more help because that's a, a vine that climbs by by twining. But uh, yeah, um, it, it may not cling to bare cement like a Boston ivy will. Uh, but there, there are creative ways of growing all sorts of different vines. And something that we haven't talked about are vines that actually are grown as houseplants. Uh, one that comes to mind that has really dramatic air roots and is very popular is uh, some of the monsteras. Yes, totally. And some of the, the philodendrons, too, like my heartleaf philodendron, mm-hmm. is very easy to root because uh, it, it has little aerial, aerial rootlets uh, that will start growing the second it touches the soil. I guess a little bit different with those with the let's say the monstera philodendron and that those roots that are coming out aren't going to attach to a a surface like like concrete or wood per se but if that stem touches the ground it will it will um attach which is pretty cool in its own right um there are philodendrons that will will grow um you know, with aerial roots, um, just you're less likely to run into them commonly in, in greenhouse situations. Why don't we trend towards wrapping up by going a little more in depth on supporting vines? So you, you've certainly talked about the fact that it's very important to provide the right support for any particular vine. Uh, what are some of the different techniques uh, and structures that you can use for supporting vines, and uh, what are, what are the some of those structures best suited to? Totally. If you're growing a vine that's twining, so if it has a stems that wrap around structures, then you could be using any variety of different types of poles. You name it, whether it's you know just a, a lamp post or rebar i've i've seen painted rebar used to great effect in gardens uh bamboo stakes you name it really it's y- your uh, creativity is is really the only limit on you know the types of poles you could use for these vines uh chain link fence too honestly it is a a great place for a lot of these vines to grow on so if you're trying to hide a fence a chain link fence for some reason but you don't want to get rid of it Growing a twining vine is probably a, a great option in that scenario. Um, wires, too. So just having some sort of, of horizontal support with wires that stretch down to the ground can work quite nicely for these twiners. As can trellises and uh, fancier arbors, too, that have more of a, a lattice work structure or design. Um, twining vines are, are going to have an easy time climbing up those. So just as kind of a reminder again, that that could be things like morning glory, hyacinth bean, that Dutchman's pipe, wisteria, maybe your American bittersweet. All of those uh, will do well in that sort of support. If you have something with tendrils, so you're growing sweet peas, uh, grapes or peas, uh, an arbor or, or trellis could work too. Um, well, a lot of times what you see, though, is people using horizontal wires or vertical wires, depending on, on the vine. Um, again, chain link fence will work okay, too, or maybe even twine. So something that's very delicate, like a pea or a sweet pea, just a temporary twine in the garden could be fine. 
if it's something with aerial roots, like that climbing hydrangea or English ivy, trumpet creeper, it's going to be better to have more of a, a solid surface. So a, a stone arch or um, retaining wall, stone wall, uh, something similar is, is going to work out well for these plants if you want them to climb. And then the, the vines with those hold fast. So the Boston ivy or Virginia creeper are going to work nicely again on a, a solid structure, something like a, you know, a retaining wall again, or the, the side of a brick building. What I wouldn't put vines on is uh, a wooden building, certainly, because uh, those vines could get up underneath the siding um, and cause damage. Uh, or stucco, because there could be some damage there. Uh, but brick, that should be fine as long as the bricks and, and mortar are in good shape. And we haven't talked about vegetables that grow with a sort of vine and growth habit. I don't know if you can call um, some of the cucurbits or beans or peas. Can you? Do, are we calling those vines? And, Absolutely. And, okay, so how about supporting those? Yeah, I typically call those vining crops. Got a bunch of options uh, for peas or beans using some sort of wire mesh can work really nicely or just having poles. So pole beans, I mean, that, that name comes from that idea of just having a pole stuck in the ground for them to twine around, uh, which again, Kind of sky's kind of the limit on your creativity, but having some sort of vertical upright structure for those twining crops is going to make a lot of sense for uh, for beans, certainly. For peas, having more of a, a cross hatching, so a, some sort of trellis, or like I said, that, that mesh will work nice with those tendrils. And the same kind of goes for cucumbers, uh, melons, gourds. All of these are going to climb by tendrils, too. So having a, a lattice or something like that that the tendrils can climb around is helpful. The only trick with some of the cucurbits that have very large fruits is that you may need to come up with some way to support the fruit so it doesn't pull the vine off of the structure as it develops. Uh, there's, there's, you know, lots of great examples of this online. Um, a lot of people will save space in their garden by growing some of these crops upright, like their, like their cucumbers or gourds. Um, or even even melons or pumpkins or you name it. Kind of my personal favorite approach is actually using vertical space in the pathways, right? If you, if you take some cattle panel or something and arch it over the pathway, otherwise that is wasted space and, and it looks really great and, and it's very practical too. Perfect. Yeah, I, I must agree. I think that is a, really a great way to step up your vegetable garden to the next level. So, so Emma, I'm not sure what our next episode is going to be about, but a couple episodes that we've talked a little bit about and are going to do in the near future, one is going to be on invasive plants. So we talked about a few today, but there are a whole bunch that we've gotten a lot of questions about, like Japanese knotweed that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet. Um, and then we also want to do some different homesteading episodes. So certainly... Uh, on different types of livestock, uh, on pasture. So, and I bring that up because I want to encourage our listeners, if you have questions about these topics, let us know uh, so, so that we can make sure we're covering them. We haven't done an awesome job of teasing upcoming episodes. So I'm 
trying to do a better job of that right now. Any of those questions about those topics or suggestions and questions about other topics, uh, send us an email, gsg.pod at unh.edu. If, if you haven't had a chance to do it, we'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening if the platform lets you do so. Um, and sharing, of course, the podcast with, with other gardeners here in New Hampshire and northern New England or wherever you're listening from. Emma, do you have any closing thoughts or perhaps a featured vine that you'd like to talk about a little bit more in detail? This episode's featured plant is cup and saucer vine, Cobea scandens, which is a tender perennial vine that is native to Mexico and tropical South America, though it's best grown as an annual in the ground or large containers in New Hampshire. Cup and saucer vine is rapid growing and tendril climbing, and it can grow 10 or more feet in a single season, which means a sturdy trellis or arbor is needed to support all of its growth. The plant's name comes from its bell-shaped flowers that are subtended by a saucer-like green calyx, giving the blooms a teacup-like appearance. Each bloom lasts about four days, emerging green and maturing to purple. In my experience, you should expect flowers in late summer into fall. Cup and saucer vine is pretty easy to grow in places with well-drained, consistently moist soil and full sun. Since it takes a while for the plants to bloom, Seed should be started indoors in late winter, about 8 to 10 weeks before the last frost. If you're looking for an unusual vine to add to your garden, look no further. Cup and saucer vine is where it's at. Okay, well, until next time, keep on growing those vines, Granite State Gardeners. We'll talk to you again soon. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.